Did anyone ever say that? I don't know what it was for your generation. I don't know, but I know for me, it was, you know, there are several things that I felt like I didn't have that I wanted growing up that I saw my friends have. And I would go to my mother and say, Mom, I'm, I'm the only one who doesn't have a cell phone. Now, I was in high school when cell phones kind of became a thing, and my parents' response was, well, you can buy your own cell phone, and that's what I had to do at that point. But there are times when it feels like we're the only one, when we don't have something, and everybody else has it. Sometimes it's easy to, to think that we're the only one who struggles in life. Sometimes it's easy to think that we're the only one who's dealing with pain or anxiety or stress. That it looks like everybody else has their life together and you don't. Sometimes it's even easy to think that if I don't do something, if I'm not the one who actually does it, then it won't get done. You can even have that thought in the local church that, well, if I don't do it, then it's just not going to get done. And maybe there are some things in life that if you don't do it, they won't get done. Maybe there are some things <laughs> It's all right. Sometimes we just got to laugh. It's okay. <laughs> it's all right. Don't worry about it. You know, sometimes I think the Lord wants to the the there's someone else who wants to distract us from what the Lord wants us to hear. But I'm going to we're going to kind of restart some of this. Everyone else can check your phones, too, to make sure everyone's good. I'm doing that on my phone. Is my phone silent? But sometimes it can feel like we're the only one. And sometimes even in the life of the church, we're the only ones who, who feel like if we don't do it, then is it going to get done? And maybe there are things in life that if you don't do it, it won't get done. But, but when it comes to the life of the church, when it comes to the life of the church, it doesn't just depend upon us. In fact, there is someone who is greater that we look to. There is someone who is greater that will grow his church. You see, it is by God's grace alone that he sustains and renews his church. It's by God's grace alone that he sustains and renews his church. You know, as a church, sometimes we can plan and we can scheme. We can scheme and plan. We can have meetings to make more meetings. We can do all these things. But until we realize that the true nature of how God has chosen to work in the world, we will find ourselves exhausted and tired, anxious and frustrated, and crying out, am I the only one doing anything? It's by God's grace alone that he sustains and renews his church. You see, we've been going through Romans backwards. And we started, we started in chapter 16. And now we're in this middle section in Romans 9 through 11. And I just want to recap just a few things to, to refresh in everyone's memory. You see, 
Paul wrote Romans, and he's writing a letter to the church in Rome. And he's there, he's articulating his gospel. He had a reputation that preceded him. And it wasn't always the greatest of reputations. And he sets out to write this letter. He hopes to visit them one day to set an outpost so that he can go on and to, to do missions somewhere else in Spain as he writes. But in chapter 9, he, he talks about why has Israel rejected the gospel? Why are Jews going down this one path and he and others are, are veering left and receiving Christ? Has God's plan of salvation, has God's salvation history, what he's been working from the time of Abraham, has it been disrupted? If Israel is God's chosen nation and his chosen people, has God failed in keeping his promises? Paul says no to that. And he writes in chapter 9 that, that he demonstrates that how there's always been a winnowing in Israel's history. That of all the nations on the earth, he chose Abraham to be his people. And it was just even within the house of Abraham, there was a winnowing. There was a selection that God chose Jacob and not Esau. And what he's referring to in those points is nations. He tells the story of how Pharaoh could not even keep or resist God's plan of salvation for the world. And that ultimately we see the true Israelite in the person of Jesus. Then in chapter 10 we see this beautiful chapter about what it truly means to be saved. How is one to receive Christ? That there are not two paths. Those who belong to Israel, those who are Jews, they don't have one way and those Gentiles have another way. But it is only through Christ Jesus, through faith in him. That one can be saved. And at the end of chapter 10, Paul has a verse talking about Israel's disobedience. And what he has in mind there, that there is this current rejection. In the moment, those Jews who are resisting Jesus as Messiah. And so chapter 11, Paul is kind of re coming at these arguments in a different way, that God has not rejected his people, that in fact he is faithful, he has kept a remnant, and that he will also speak to Israel's future at the end. And so when we look at chapter 11, there's a couple things that are kind of challenges with that. I will say that there's not a lot of sermons out there on Romans chapter 11. There's not many who like to preach even Romans chapters 9 through 11. And there's even less who preached Romans 11. I'll be honest, there's some challenges within that because it is specifically talking about the people of Israel. It is God's dealing with Israel and it's part of Paul's argument. It's helpful for us to understand how God is working in broad strokes to bring forth salvation to all the world. And so chapter 11 presents its own challenges in the fact that it was written for Israel. But God's word is also his word for us today. And that there is a core truth that we can see when we look at Romans chapter 11 in our verses today, 1 through 6. 
that we can then look at that and see what God is up to. And so that's our task today. There may be some things in here when we're looking at how it's talking about Israel that we're like, how does this make sense to us? And that's what we are to do then, to, to take this theological truth, this principle out of these passages, and then to be able to apply them to our time and our place today. So if you'll look with me in verse 1 of chapter 11, Paul asked that question, has God rejected his people? The answer is no. Paul himself, he is a Hebrew, he is a Jew, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. It's interesting that also the, the tribe that Paul comes from, the tribe of Benjamin, was Israel's first king. Saul was the first king of Israel who came from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is adamant that, that God had not rejected his people. He has not rejected his people. There's always been a winnowing. This has all been part of God's plan that culminates in Christ Jesus. For he is the perfect embodiment of the law. Fulfills the law perfectly. Because we could not. And then he goes on into verse 2. The second part of it. If God has not abandoned Israel... He then says, do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. You know, one of the most, I think, powerful stories in the Old Testament comes from the prophet Elijah. If you were to go read 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, and 19, it's some of the best, I think, in the Hebrew and the Old Testament, of you see God acting and who God is and His sovereignty, His power. Truly, truly, a powerful, powerful set of God's Word. And if you're not sure of kind of the history or the story of Elijah, you see at this point there were two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom and you had the southern kingdom. And Elijah was prophesying, he was a prophet, and he predicted, he prophesied that there would be a drought on the land because King Ahab was an evil, evil king. There had been none as evil as him up to that point, and he married a woman who still carries connotations today, Jezebel. So if someone calls you a Jezebel, it's not a good thing to be called a Jezebel. But Ahab married Jezebel. And Jezebel continued to take Ahab away, further and further away from God's command. They raised altars. They worshipped false gods. They took the people of Israel away from what God had commanded them. And in 1 Kings 17 through 19, we see Elijah predict there would be a drought and great famine upon the land. And there was. We see in that story where Elijah goes to a widow who is a Gentile. And this Gentile widow cares for Elijah. Elijah raises her son back from the dead. And then we come and to the part of the story where Elijah confronts Ahab. And it's there where Elijah has a contest, so to speak, 
between Elijah and Yahweh and the prophets of Baal. And they're on this mountainside, and it's a beautiful story. And all of a sudden, the prophets of Baal, they build an altar. And whichever God consumes this altar is the one whose God is the true God. And the prophets of Baal are, you know, they're, they're calling out to God. And, and you can imagine this story where Elijah's there, and he begins to mock them. He goes, perhaps your God's asleep. I mean, I can imagine he just is there taunting them because he knows what's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. And the prophets of Baal, they continue to wail out and wail out. And Elijah's like, well, maybe they're out golfing. Maybe they're not listening to you. And the story goes, and at that point, then, then Elijah, it's his turn. They failed. The prophets of Baal, they couldn't call upon their God to consume this altar. And all of a sudden, we see Elijah. And he says, well, what you need to do is bring some water. And I want you to put water all over this altar. I want you to put water around. I want you to fill it with water. Because I don't want there to be any doubt when I call out to my God what's going to happen to this altar. And Elijah does. And the Lord shows up in a powerful way at that point and consumes the entire altar, the water included. Nothing is left. The priest of Baal had been defeated. And Elijah and others, they, they go after those priests. But then after that point, Elijah just, I think, kind of has a, what did I do, just kind of moment. I'd never seen the power of God in this way. And he flees Jezebel. Because Jezebel has told him, if I come across you, Elijah, I'm going to kill you. And so then Elijah, he runs into the wilderness. He runs into the wilderness. And there the Lord speaks to Elijah. He speaks to him. At this point, you could describe Elijah in a lot of different ways. Maybe he was depressed. He was burnt out. He just come off the mountain. All of a sudden, he's realizing, how do I go about my life now? He's no longer walking. At this point, in the way of trusting the Lord, he got distracted. And as he's there in the wilderness, he just wants to die. I just want to be left alone. Just take me home, Lord. I'm tired of, of fighting this fight. Because when I look out, all I see is a people who constantly are turning away from you and worshiping others. And God tells him to go out. I'm about to show up again. And the great wind comes. And God isn't there in this great wind. God shows up to Elijah in that moment in a still, small voice on the other side of it. God reminds him, you're not the only one. In fact, there are over 7,000 who are faithful to me. You're not alone. Now get up and go about your business, what I've called you to do. So here in this passage, in Romans 11, Paul uses this story to demonstrate that God is in control even when we don't think he is. That he has a plan even when we least expect it. And that God is at work even when we least expect it. When we don't see, when we look out and we think that if it's just up to us, it's not going to get done. 
Paul says that's not the case, is it? In fact, he goes on to say that at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul says, I am speaking and living proof that God has not forsaken Israel. But it's not because of anything that I have done. It's because of God's grace. It's not based upon my works or someone else's works, but upon grace and what God has done. The whole point of the story of looking at Elijah is that God is in control. That he absolutely knows what he is doing in the world. And when we read these words of Paul talking about Israel, that there is a remnant, that God knows what he is doing in the world, he's been faithful to Israel's past, he's been faithful to Israel's present, and he will be faithful to Israel's future. And the same is true for us. You see, this passage, as we bridge the gap from then to now, it should cause us to reflect upon how God is the one who sustains and renews his church. Because so often we can get into this idea if it's just up to me, it's not going to happen. So there's three things that I want to point out to you, church, about how God is the one who sustains and renews his church. And the first is this. God establishes his church. You see, from the very beginning, we see in the book of Matthew, he says these words, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, the church is not the kingdom of God. But it is the primary way from which God has chosen to bring about and to build his kingdom. The church is not a building, but a people. It is the ecclesia theus, the community of God. And when the church is the church, it brings together a group of people that transcends race and gender and economics and even blood. For as Galatians says that we are all one in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. It is God himself who establishes his church. It is the bride of Christ. And I think so often we can have this view of the church as we say, oh, the church. And it often is, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I go to this church. Or, you know, I know church can be a bad experience for people. But in fact, I think we need to have such a view that the church is the bride of Christ. It's not just anything. It's not just a building, but the bride of Christ. What would it look like if we changed our perspective of church as truly how God has chosen to work in the world? That's what Ephesians 5 tells us. Paul uses the marriage relationship to talk about God's relationship. Christ Jesus, the head of the church. Christ gave himself up for the church. He died for the church. He loved the church. 
and the church in turn is to go to be the hands and feet of Christ in the world. It's not just church. We are the bride of Christ. It's a powerful image that we have to hold on to as the people of God. God is the one who establishes his church. And the second is this, God has not abandoned his church. We see Paul quoting Elijah, and I alone am left when they seek my life. The overwhelming feeling of living in our culture, and I think perhaps all cultures feel this, all churches and all times have felt this. Am I the only one? Has God abandoned us? I mean, there's studies that come out all the time about how the church is in decline, particularly what's the church going to look like in a post-pandemic world. I don't know. But I hold on to the fact that God has not abandoned his church. I was in class back at the end of January, and one of our professors had spent some time doing some research in the Northwest, and one of our classmates, she was talking about, you know, just, you know, are there churches in the Northwest? And we didn't really get to get in that conversation uh, because the way it sounded like from some of the, the conversation we were having that there weren't any churches in the Northwest. You know, it's, you know, the Northwest, Seattle, Portland, you read about it on the news or watch it on TV, and it is a very secular place. It's a very lost place. But I told her afterwards, I said, there's, there's so many churches in the Northwest. Now, there's not as many churches as Waco, Texas. I'll give them that. But there are a lot of churches. There are people who are doing faithful gospel ministry. There are people who God has raised up to plant churches in these places. Now, the number of believers is really small. There's no doubt about that, but there are small churches, there are large churches, there are growing churches. That even though it may look like when we see a place like the Northwest, that it's completely lost, and it is lost, lost as a goose. But there are people who are there faithfully giving themselves and their lives so that other people will come to know Jesus. And I think we have to also trust in the fact that God, because he establishes his church, he will not abandon his church. And because of that, there should be great freedom on our part. There should be great freedom on our part to do the very thing that God has called us to do and leave the rest to him. We're called to love one another, to serve one another, to be a light in darkness, to be set apart, a city on a hill. And when we embody the very things that we see in God's word, he will take care of the rest. We don't have to keep track of all these different things, come up with schemes and plans to have meetings, to have meetings, and all those have a place. But at the end of the day, because God has established his church, he will not abandon his church. And we all should rest in the fact that, thank God, that's the case and the truth. That it's his grace that sustains his church. But God also, lastly, renews his church. There is a remnant chosen by God. If the church is the bride of Christ, he has not abandoned the church. 
we see in the book of Revelation, he walks among his churches. He knows his churches. And those that listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, those that are guided by the Holy Spirit, truly continue to make an impact, to be part of God's kingdom. Yes, the church universal will always be established. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But local churches, local expressions of that truth, that's not always the case. History is littered with churches that no longer exist. For many of them, it's maybe things changed, their, their theology changed, they no longer believed in the truthfulness of God's word, about who Jesus was and says he was. But we see in Scripture from Acts chapter 15 when we have that council as the Gentiles are included into God's plan of salvation. They listen obediently to the Spirit. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see those Corinthians living in sin, resisting the Spirit, not doing what God's Word commands. And we see in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians chapter 4 this idea of unity, the body of Christ. But if Christ is the head, he is the one who renews. He walks among the churches. That he alone can renew a church. I don't know if we have any, I don't know if the word's arborist or bonsaiist, but bonsai trees. Does anybody have a bonsai tree? In our church, I don't, I doubt it, but there are people, I was doing a little bit of reading about bonsai trees, and I was having a conversation, they were telling someone, talking to me about it, and I thought it was kind of fascinating. You see pictures of them, but a bonsai tree are real trees. They actually, if they were planted in the ground, a bonsai tree would grow into a full tree. But a bonsai tree is artificially kept small. And I wish I had a picture of it, but you can Google it when you get done, or if you're on your phone right now, you can do that right now. But a bonsai tree is a normal tree that if planted in the ground, it would grow to become healthy and big and tall and as it was intended to be. But to keep a tree small, the size of a container, it has to be artificially manipulated. And the way they do that, there's three things. One, they prune. They, they cut back new growth, which will cause denser foliage on those small little trees. They keep the bonsai tree in a smaller pot, a shallow container so that the roots can't grow, and when the roots do grow, they come in and they, they trim them to keep them small. They do leaf care so when the leaves bloom, they pull off those leaves at first, and then when others grow back, they grow back smaller. They manipulate the amount of light that it receives to keep leaves smaller or larger. It's interesting that a bonsai tree is still a plant, still a growing thing, but it's manipulated to remain small. You know, sin can have the same effect on the life of a church. It can keep what God has intended to grow and to flourish and keep it artificially small. 
something that it wasn't really intended to be. Sin can have a devastating impact upon the life of a church. How so? Scripture tells us. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians. Jesus talked about it and battled the Pharisees. I mean, I think you can imagine any kind of ism that you want to put in there would be things that can keep churches from growing and becoming what God had intended them to become. And churches that have isms as the primary focus, it is only through the power of the Spirit that can that church then be renewed. Perhaps it's legalism. I think we all know what legalism is. It's what someone else does, <laughs> not what I do. Jesus constantly went back and forth with those Pharisees. They were imposing certain rules upon others that wasn't a part of God's work. And he challenges them in that. That this has no part of God's heart. If it's not legalism, it might be skepticism. In other words, if we haven't done it that way before. Or I don't like doing it that way. I know I'm getting into that stage of life at this point with my kids. Oh, not the way I want to do it. There's another one that I think of, of that I think is at really the heart of of keeping a church artificially small. And it's consumerism. People get this idea where it's, I don't see the need, it's just Jesus and me mentality. They talk about the church and not the bride of Christ. And there's a difference. And y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? When you have conversations with people, it's just church. But we're talking about in God's word, the bride of Christ. I don't see the need, it's just Jesus and me. I came up with that, I thought that was pretty catchy. Because I really think that captures the struggle. The struggle we all are facing at times. And you see, I'm not talking about attendance, because attendance is important. I'll say that. You can attend and not be engaged, though. You can be here all the time and not be engaged. You could sit in a pew every week and not be engaged, or a class and not be engaged. But you know, it's far more unlikely to be engaged and not attend. You see that there is a relationship between our engagement and attendance. And church, if I could tell you anything, it isn't the amount of time you spend in this building, but it's about your engagement. How are you engaged with the bride of Christ? And I think with engagement comes attendance. To what degree, I'm not sure, but, but if I could speak to anything. But we have to be engaged because when we're engaged, how else do we practice the fruit of the Spirit? How else do we live out love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? 
if it's just Jesus and me, how can you practice patience? Because a Baptist church filled with committees will try your patience. It's in community that we get to learn to, what does it mean to be peacemakers? How do we practice self-control? kindness and goodness? How do we love others when we're not engaged? You see, it's the body of Christ where we get to truly live out what God has called us to do. And yes, we do that in our own individual lives, but in your own individual life, you can pick and choose who you spend your time with, people you like, people you agree with, people that have the same hobbies and interests as you. But it's only in the bride of Christ where people of different ages and different genders and different socioeconomic statuses come together to learn from one another, to love one another. It's a powerful image of what God intended for his people to be. The body of Christ. But so often we artificially manipulate the body of Christ. We do things to keep it small. We don't follow God's word. We make it into our own image, and that's what a bonsai tree is. It's a tree created in the image of that person who's tending it. Rather than a place, a gathering, where God is the one who is in control. Because he's established his church. He has not abandoned his church, and it is only he who can renew his church. And the best way for God to renew his church is for all of us to open ourselves up. To open ourselves up to see our part in a much bigger part of what God is doing. You see, there's a story in a devotion that I was reading, and I wanted to share it with you. It's a story of a rabbi who once said on his deathbed, and this is what he said, When I was young, I set out to change the world. When I grew a little older, I perceived that this was too ambitious, so I set out to change my state. This, too, I realized as I grew older was too ambitious, so I set out to change my town. When I realized I could not even do this, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I know that I started, that it should have started by changing myself. If I had started with myself, maybe then I would have succeeded in changing my family, the town, or even the state. And who knows, maybe even the world. See, church, we all have a part to play being a part of the bride of Christ. We all have a part to play. About our engagement and about all that comes with it. But I think first and foremost we've seen that it is by God's grace alone that he loves us he forgives us even when we fail even when we haven't maybe been the most engaged maybe we've attended and haven't been engaged perhaps maybe it's you're thinking that you carry the weight of sustaining the church 
to know this day that it is by God's grace. It is by God's grace that we do all things. And when we submit to that, that truth, and we live it out, God will renew his church in powerful ways. He will renew this church again and again and again. God establishes, he has not abandoned, and he renews his his church. Our job is just to repent, to ask for forgiveness, and for the Spirit to move in our lives. Because Jesus paid it all and gave us grace upon grace upon grace. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We ask in this time, Father, we ask, Lord, that you convict us where we need convicting, that you show us where we have been artificially keeping things the way we want them and not the way you intended. I pray, Lord, in this time that you let everyone here today experience your endless and merciful grace. May you renew this church. May you sustain this church. And may we trust that you have not abandoned this church. We love you and we trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.